You're listening to Midori House. First broadcast on the 16th of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. This is Emma Nelson. And on today's show, Saudi Arabia versus the world. With the US Secretary of State in Riyadh, we'll look at how the death of the dissident Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi is causing some countries to cry out in alarm and others to stare at their shoes. My guests Robert Fox and Florence Biederman will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including how Bavaria's elections could shape Dieselgate with huge German car brands based in Germany's biggest state will look at what could lie in store. All that plus what to do when someone sends you a terrible portrait of yourself. In Donald Trump's case, it means hang it in the White House. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Emma Nelson. Okay. Good. That was good. Uneventful. Okay. Yeah. I hope we don't have jet lag. <laughs> in a little while. So far, so good. Pleasantries being exchanged there between the US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and King Salman of Saudi Arabia. Two men who smiled and shook hands together while the rest of the world wondered what has happened to the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. He was last seen going into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul two weeks ago. It's feared he was murdered in there. But while the political figures engaged in diplomatic niceties, Google, HSBC, Credit Suisse and Standard Charters joined the likes of Sotheby's, BlackRock and Uber in their decision to pull out of the Saudi Arabia Future Investment Initiative, otherwise known as Davos in the Desert. The conference was set up only last year, intending to show Saudi Arabia in a fresh, open light. Instead, it's become the lightning rod for the world's reaction to the disappearance of Mr Khashoggi. Well, my guests today are Florence Biederman, the London Bureau Chief for AFP, and Robert Fox, London Evening Standards Defence Editor. Welcome both to the programme. Um, Florence, what was your reaction when you, when you heard or saw that Mike Pompeo, King Salman of Saudi Arabia smiling like old friends. The thing that I could think of is I wonder how that compared to the reaction or to the welcome that Jamal Khashoggi received when he walked through the doors of the Saudi Arabian um, consulate. Well, that's certainly a a dark comparison. I mean, uh, you have to understand that um, the US are not, and this was clearly said by Trump, going to cut their relation with Saudi Arabia. they, they say there is too much at, at, at stake, the business, it's also the regional alliance. So, so far, I mean, they, they will try to, to gain uh, some time, you know, to, to wait for the Saudis to, to come with a kind of uh, vaguely acceptable explanation of, uh, of what went on. So I guess it's kind of, yeah, as you say, uh, friendly smiles. Uh, they, they, they cannot really accuse them directly so far as, far as, as long as they don't have direct proof. And I think both sides play on on this ambiguity still. This is something that, it's a story that's moved in the last 24 hours, hasn't it, Robert, insofar as up until about this time yesterday, the Saudis said that they had nothing to do with it. King Salman had personally told Donald Trump that he knew nothing about it. But then, although this hasn't been confirmed, the Saudis are expected to say that indeed Mr. Hashoji did die inside the Saudi Arabian consulate as a result of an interrogation process that went wrong. Yeah, but by the way, I was in Istanbul, arrived in Istanbul the same day uh, within hours of um, Mr. Khashoggi going to the 
consulate, the word was out within 24 hours and the word was out with a very strong idea from Turkish intelligence. Read into that what you will. Probably they had the place bugged that he'd been killed. And there is no doubt about it. He is dead. And the thing that is very strong, yes, the official media is reporting all this, that and the other. But this is where the blogosphere really does come into its own. There is stuff um, from friends of mine, too, that's coming out about the circumstances in which he died, the 15 mysterious Arabs who appeared on two private jets uh, at the time and appeared to have taken over um, uh, the future and uh, the... Um, the processing of Mr. Khashoggi, who had gone there to get divorce papers or papers relating to the divorce so he could marry his Turkish fiancée. Let's give that background him. They have now been identified, the 15, as being in the immediate entourage and, and bodyguard of uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Now, this is very serious. And this is, you're quite right, it has moved in 24 hours because uh, Mr. Pompeo, as you rightly indicated through the body language, is on Mission Impossible because the finger is pointing at the Crown Prince it is pointing in a way that this strange media world now works that he now has to exonerate himself. It's very, very interesting that, that uh, Jamal knew that something was up. He was absolutely desperate that they had made uh, him a target. It goes back to the 12th century. It's Henry II and Thomas a Becket. Who will rid me of my turbulent critic? It was my turbulent priest in that day. And I think that the finger is now on the crown prince. And very interestingly, take the right-wing loonies aside, supported by people like Neil Ferguson in the Sunday Times, that the fact is that now Mohammed bin Salman's future, as possibly the future king of Saudi Arabia, is on the line. Mike Pompeo, Florence, is no fool. He will know exactly everything that is going on here and oh, he will be aware of everything. Yeah. What can he do? Well, I think, uh, as Robert said, there, there are questions on the personality of uh, Mohammed bin Salman now. There are no questions, I think, on, on the strategic alliance of the United States with Saudi Arabia, but there are definitely questions on uh, its ruler or its future ruler. or Because since uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, is... Uh, has emerged as a, a powerful figure in Saudi uh, politics. I mean, it's kind of a, a disaster around. Like the, there is the war in Yemen uh, with the incredible amount of civilian casualty, with the brutality uh, that, that is seen in the region. But coming from Saudi Arabia, it's uh, it's uh, which is uh, an ally. It's, it's kind of disturbing. Uh, there was also like the incredible kidnapping uh, a president to to the one, Mr. Khashoggi, uh, kidnapping. He has not been killed of uh, Saad Hariri. The, the uh, first, uh, the prime minister of Lebanon, who has been kidnapped for a few days, uh, and who had to resign, and then who took his resignation. All this was also instigated by uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So th there is a series of uh, of actions that are completely in contradiction with the, the usual uh, Saudi policy, which is pretty conservative, with careful rulers who are careful not to alienate the West. Uh, and this is a, a total change, and a total change that has been supported and. <laughs> in a way, instigated by Donald Trump because he gave all his uh, support to, to, to uh, Saudi Arabia. It was his first official visit. Now his uh, uh, son-in-law is a friend or described as a friend of Mohammed bin Salman. So there are, I think, many questions indeed uh, around this uh, personality and what, what's, what's his future. Would you agree, uh, Robert, that what Florence says there is that 
Saudi Arabia, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, has been effectively being given the green light to allow Saudi Arabia to behave in a way that it would never have done five or six years ago, simply because of the strength of the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the man in the White House. I think this is very interesting, and it's actually this is epoch making, in that this is where the, the the thing is going to turn on a hinge. France is absolutely right because the watchword of Saudi policy and Saudi foreign policy was caution. Always be cautious. Don't get stick your neck out. If anything, get somebody else to do it for you, but to be very very careful. The way it balanced its relationships between Israel. Obviously, it couldn't be seen to supporting any form of Israeli policy in any way, but was very careful and very considered about that with the Palestinian cause and with the US and with Europe. Very, very clever balancing act. You're absolutely right that the mood music changes with the arrival of Trump and his son-in-law. They are very attracted to this can-do 32-year-old I know my way, how to do it. He's a very clever man, very studious man, Mohammed bin Salman. He, he, he is not a slouch. But the one thing that comes out of this, which of which this seems to be symptomatic, seems to be, because we don't have the full facts yet, is how irascible and how rash he is. And his rashness is seems to have gone wrong in about four cru- crucial areas. Yes, we know Yemen, the confrontation with Iran, uh, Qatar, but the other thing that's gone wrong is the flotation of Aramco too. And this is where the Trump mood music, if you just hear me out on this, seems to have changed subtly over the last 24 hours. He's not talking about his discussions with Mohammed bin Salman, but his discussions with the father. And he's discussed, and he's not mentioned uh, the crown prince at all in this. And this is where, why I think it's epoch-making, everything is, we, we, Emma, you and I frequently, with Florence, we've talked about everything with Trump is transactional. It's the art of the deal and deal-making. And this was the approach to Saudi Arabia. They've backed the wrong horse and it has gone terribly wrong. Deal-making seems to be in such a subtle and complex arena, no substitute for policy. In that no- on that note... Let's talk about business and transactions. You mentioned the idea of Trump having a transactional approach to absolutely everything he does. He's sending Mike Pompeo over to be effectively be a diplomat who has if nothing that can that can be said or done. Nonetheless, the companies, the big businesses of this world, are sending a message to Saudi Arabia, Florence, the likes of which no government arguably feels comfortable doing. Namely, we don't like what you're doing. We're not coming to your um, party. Davos in the desert. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But uh, again, let, let, let's wait and see uh, uh, what happens. Still, still notions will still be going. I mean, there will be of American officials there. So, yeah, there was Richard Branson who said he was freezing a Saudi investment. By the way, I like the, the word freeze because what, what happens later on? I mean, of course, there are interrogations, there are questions, and uh, the Western world cannot just look, sit and say, oh, yeah, maybe they kill and torture a dissident in an embassy in a foreign country. They cannot do nothing. Uh, again, l- let's wait and see in a, in a few weeks, in a few months, I mean, uh, if it's not back to normal. I mean, but there, something must happen. Is, is this going to be a turning point, Robert, insofar as I don't think anybody is terribly surprised that Saudi Arabia can treat some of its subjects in the way that it treated, that it's, it's suspected of treating, treating uh, Kamal Khashoggi, torture, 
executions, detention are, are commonplace in Saudi Arabia. But the fact that it does it, admittedly in its own diplomatic location, but abroad, that's what seems to have been the tipping point. And are we now going to see nations, companies, anybody with any kind of influence actually saying, no, this is the line it's been crossed? Gosh, I'd like to do the whole programme about this, really. It is so important, and I feel this very strongly, as you can tell, because Saudi Arabia has joined the club of thugs with this, because um, this is where, I'm sorry to bring it up again, the Neil Ferguson piece saying, oh, just another journalist. He, w- 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 did they make a fuss about Jamal because he was writing for the Washington Post, which is absolute nonsense. He was a very important critic, and it's very interesting we're talking about Davos in the desert, because that was his most serious criticism that the regeneration, the move away from oil, the Project 2030 is really flawed. And apparently that's what MBS was really upset about him writing. But killing journalists is wrong. I was horrified and, of course, being personally concerned, uh, as indeed is Florence and you in this, when they were saying... Uh, this seems to be... The, somebody said within two days of the disappearance being uh, broadcast that this may well be the new normal. No, we're not back to the Middle Ages. We're assassinating journalists because you don't like their message. But the fact is the cases are spectacular that we can look at Politikovskaya in October 2006 and uh, and, and Daphne Galizia in, 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 in Malta last year with the Panama Papers. This really is a point about the ethics of diplomacy. Do you do it? I mean, he just wrote. This, this, is, this is the interesting thing. I'm, I'm not going to get on my... But the, the fact is that this could be accepted, as you rightly say. I mean, I think your question is absolutely pertinent, that this is, oh, it's just normal practice. Look at the terrible things, which indeed they are terrible, that are being committed in Syria, where prisoners are being shot out of hand and where you kill your opponents. But killing that journalists now, despite the fake news world and ambience, are a free fire zone is terrible. And actually, Donald Trump seemed to recognise this when he said this guy was a reporter. He said it may seem strange coming from my lips, but he was a reporter and you don't kill reporters because they're reporters. You're listening to Midori House. The time here in London is 1814. I'm joined in the studio by Florence Biedermann, who's the AFP London Bureau Chief, and Robert Fox, London Evening Standards Defence Editor. Well, what is vocational training in many parts of the world? It's a positive way of developing young professional skills. If you're a member of the ethnic Uyghur community in Western China, however, it could mean something altogether different. A senior Chinese Communist Party official has confirmed that so-called vocational training is is being used to stop militant activities before they happen. And I quote there, trainees agree to study everything from the Chinese language and the constitution to hairdressing and cookery. But reports suggest the places offering these courses are far from a pleasant summer camp. Um, Florence, reading the, 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 what the Chinese officials are saying is they're saying, actually, we are promoting integration into the Chinese community. We're taking people who could possibly be drawn into extremism and we're educating them in the glorious good good path of, of being a good Chinese citizen. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there is a kind of tradition of uh, re-education camps, you know, and it's rather sinister, like in Cambodia, in China during the Cultural Revolution, there is a certain experience of this. 
so I mean, yeah, as you said, the, the vocational training. I mean, it, it's uh, it's um, it it would make you laugh if it was not a bit more sinister because what we know uh, from people who have been detained in, in those camps uh, is that uh, it's not the ideal condition described by the Chinese. It's a way also to tame a population which is uh, a majority Muslim. Who there is a, an independentist, independentist movement in the area in the Xinjiang from from the Uyghur community. So uh, this is another attempt of China to 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 force people to align and and to be part of the Chinese Empire. We we, we know already what they did in Tibet for for with the same aim, like to. To, but of course, I mean, the spinning in the vocational training is is extraordinarily cynical. And the the, the suggestion is, Robert, is that um, this is a retrospective uh, gesture. In the last couple of days, we've had a, a something being signed into Chinese law in Xinjiang, saying we will start these vocational training camps in order to re-educate the, the Uyghur population. Yet the suggestion is that this has been going on for a very long time. It has been, and it's quite interesting. The ambiguities over the Uyghurs, who are not Chinese, probably their roots are Euro-Turkic, and it's been very interesting being in Turkey at the state broadcasting convention, and there were Uyghur representatives there, and they looked to China as being their prime investor. It is very, very confused indeed. And in fact, I believe in Beijing, there are very gestural things in the um, Museum of Chinese Ethnography. There's a little exhibition very uh, uh, about uh, Uyghur culture. Uyghur culture has been around a long time, but um, it's very interesting uh, on, 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 on the curriculum of the People's Republic. But it's interesting, really, the amount of, of panic that they cause. There are only about 15 million. They are the fifth smallest, uh, the fifth largest uh, ethnic minority, but they're under 1% of the population. And they do, but they're the far end, ha, of the empire. They're in the West. So this is where you get their significance in the one belt, one road, the new silk thing, because it, we're all playing for the same team. And uh, it, is, it is very, very interesting how they are throwing stuff at this. It, it seems to be disproportionate, doesn't it, to us? And you are right, it's been going on for a long time. Well, you say it's disproportionate, but the, uh, the Chinese communist official who said, who, who, was, who gave this interview just detailing these vocational training camps that actually for the last 21 months they have had a huge drop in violent militant attacks. Now that kind of line will appeal very much to a Chinese population which may have felt terrorised, should we say, by the potential um, of, of, of Uyghur terrorist attacks, be that, that, that terror and that fear having been instilled either by genuine attacks or Oh. being told to be scared about them. What do you think, Florence? But terror and fear are never uh, an answer. And uh, you, you need a political answer more than terror and fear. I mean, it can have a certain impact for a while, but it will never change the population's mind or aspiration or unease with China. So that's... And what is especially cynical in it, again, is just to, to, to put it as a training. I mean, yeah. and I think, yeah, the, the, the Chinese have been so much criticised that they, they found, in a way, they had to, to defend themselves. But to defend yourself in such a way, I mean, seen from a Western perspective, I mean, it's just... Uh, 
a bit um, making you feel very uncomfortable. It's 18.19 here in London. You're listening to Midori House with me, Emma Nelson. I'm joined in the studio today by Florence Biedermann and Robert Fox. Coming up next, Dieselgate takes its latest German victim. Stay with us. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. And if you've just joined us, you're listening to Midori House. We're live on Monocle 24. It's Emma Nelson here in Studio One, joined by Robert Fox and Florence Biedermann. Now, it is three years and one month since the Dieselgate scandal plunged German car manufacturing into crisis and shattering a long-held perfect reputation. Dieselgate is still ongoing. Today, Germany's transport ministry has ordered around 100,000 Opel vehicles to be recalled, a day after prosecutors searched the carmaker's offices. Well, many of the big names affected by Dieselgate, such as Audi and BMW, are based in Bavaria, a region which saw political upheaval this weekend. So has Dieselgate had anything to do with the political mess Bavaria's main politicians have found themselves in? Let's begin with you, um, Florence. You would immediately counter that, wouldn't you, and say, actually, no, you have experience of working in Germany. Germany. Um, but, th- but the Bavarian elections, we had a drop in the support for the ultra-conservative CSU who've been in power for, what, seven decades. But the big big winners were the Greens. Yeah, I would say in, in Germany, there was always, and even in Bavaria, like a, a strong feeling for environment. I mean, well, well before, I would say, in the rest of Western Europe. So this is kind of a really anchor tradition in Germany, this green movement. What strikes me more, yes, it's the fact that the CSU is, is losing ground now. As you said, they've been in power since 70 years. So maybe it's time for a change in the end. And uh, they are also, in a way, associated with the Merkel and her very, very tolerant policy towards migrants, which made also uh, the extreme right uh, win ground. I mean, everybody's happy because the Greens still have more voices than they have, but definitely the AFD also was one of the, let's say, winner of uh, of this election. So uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't personally link it to, to the Dieselgate. And by the way, Dieselgate has also had some kind of... Uh, let's say, a contradictory uh, result for the German industry. You said it was a blow, you said it was bad for them, but in a way it forced them also to to diversify and to, to develop more of uh, the electric car, to develop more other techniques than a technique de- depending on diesel. So in the end, I think they, they, they can paradoxically uh, profit of the crisis to renew themselves. So I think the industry car in Germany still have uh, a future. <laughs> they will be happy to hear me saying I'm that. Very, sure. I'd be very surprised if they didn't at least for the next few years. I mean, given that Florence has really got a very good point there, hasn't she? I mean, BMW are the pioneers of both high-end and, and sort of everyday, pretty much upmarket electric cars. Audi has just joined the, 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 the deal as well. This was something that has been perhaps that, that moment when Dieselgate has 
constantly been a thorn in the side of German um, car manufacturing, hasn't it? I mean, the fact that it has gone on day after day after day for the last three years with new manufacturers being exposed and new secrets being unveiled. I think it's something to do with the politics of German industry and the heritage from the reconstruction of the great boom of the great Grand Coalition of Erhard in the 60s. Um, uh, I respect... Um, uh, Florence and her sources and the kind of people that she talks to are probably at the top end of the business. I have a nephew and a niece who are very much involved in German and East German industry um, and high tech and new tech. Uh, uh, my niece Katarina, who's a banker, was an Oste and was extracted as a 16-year-old. Uh, she was about to go to the Humboldt. She just finished the gymnasium when the wall came down. They are both, and they're friends. And she went to INSEAD, the, the great uh, school at Fontainebleau Business School. They think uh, the German approach to business technology and industry is very old-fashioned. And these two and their friends say, why on earth did Merkel continue to bet on diesel when everybody else... And curiously... Brexit Britain and all that, Brexit Bulldog, they are much more praising of what Britain and some parts of France realised was coming up and that you've got to be out of this within within half a generation or a, gen a, a, a generation. And that's why I'm, I'm slightly... I, I, I don't know Germany as well as Florence does, but I think you have a point about the resurgence of, 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 of the Greens. Because this is one of the things we've, we're hearing about the new fashion, the new Fukuyama thesis is all identity politics. Well, actually, young people under 30 have got fed up with that. They want real politics back again in their own terms. And I think that this is what is related. I'm very struck in the UK. It's not beginning to show in the polls, but it's beginning to show in the opinion forming fora how the Greens are coming back. Very prominent. Very prominent in, in the Assembly of London, for example. I'll bet they'll have a good showing in the upcoming, uh, in the, in the upcoming general election because they realise the, 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 these people who are now numerate, very cosmopolitan, very international, they take on board what has happened on the latest report on climate change and so on and say, look, we've really got to do something. We can't have same old, same old politics. Finally, anyone given a genuine piece of artwork, be it a painting, sculpture or picture, knows how lucky they are. They're in possession of a piece of original creativity the moment when the muse descended. Or what exactly landed in the mind of the artist Andy Thomas when he created the painting The Republican Club is perhaps anyone's guess. A sort of poor man's Edward Hopper, but without the atmosphere, the skill or in fact anything, apart from the people in the picture. It's a portrait of Donald Trump sitting around a table, sharing a laugh with the likes of Nixon, both the Bushes, President Reagan and Abraham Lincoln. And what's more, this picture has been hung in the White House. Florence, what do you think of the picture? Oh, this is uh, this is a wonderful story. I mean, <laughs> you, you look at the picture and my first thought was it really looks like, you know, the Soviet art of the 1920s, 30s, like where you would see uh, Lenin with the Drezinsky, Sverdlov, whatever, you know, that kind of group portraits of the great leader uh, in uh, invented uh, circumstances. So, OK, I, I, I'm not saying the White House is the Kremlin, but the kind of art is really, to me, uh, strikingly uh, the same. And, well, I mean, it's it's something that everybody was surprised because, as you said, the quality of the painting is 
not that obvious. So what's the most interesting for his owner, if not the subject, which means himself? That's the most elegant artistic verdict I've heard for a very long time. Thank you, Florence. The thing that made me laugh out loud, um, Robert, was we all talk about original art that Donald Trump or whatever president will hang on the walls and during their temporary stay in the, in, in the White House. This isn't even the original. He's got a copy. But I think that this is why it is really great art in the spirit, <laughs> in the spirit of post, post, postmodern irony. Warhol would love this. I don't know where you've just disappeared. From because it. the journalist, sorry, the artist himself, is hilarious about this. When he saw this on 60 Minutes, he said, for goodness sake, what on earth is that doing there? Even he didn't think it was particularly good. And don't think he's an uber-Trumpist or a Republican, he did the same with the Democrats. They're absolutely hideous. But what it really was, it, it's a shabine. Really, we don't. we know that the president doesn't drink, but he really should have a glass of Irish in his hand. That's what it is. The person who does have a glass of Irish, so actually a glass of red wine, is Nixon. Um, Well-known boozer. Who quite liked to have a drink. I mean, there are, lot, there are lots of sort of quite acerbic comments in this picture. Were we to spend any sort of time looking at them? What do you think, Florence? With, yeah, with Trump yeah. and oh, his I diet think it's coke? full of irony. Full yeah, of yeah, irony. Yeah, no, it, it's, oh, absolutely it's a very, It's a very deep painting. <laughs> <laughs> like you see uh, in, in the background a woman, so it's supposed to symbolise the fact that maybe one day a woman would be present. I mean, so maybe we we, we ignore the depths of, of the painting. It's actually just the way you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't come up with a killer fact about Nixon. Nixon kept all the choice uh, uh, Rothschilds and so on, the, the Bordeaux for himself, and fed all his guests uh, Californian plonk. You know, <laughs> that's the thing. Not- I, I think. I think actually that the, the, the joke has even rebounded on Trump. I think it's uh, sublime. I think Andy Warhol, he would have loved it. I'm with him. It's postmodern irony. That brings <laughs> us to the end of today's show. I'm afraid Florence Miedemann and Robert Fox. Thank you very much for joining me in the studio at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Agusta Pacheco and Martha. Libri and our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next and at 1900 it's Monocle on Design and we'll have more on the day's main stories focusing on the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Hope you can join me for that. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, that's 1800 London time. For now from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Listener.